right. Well, I uh, am, again, I am excited for us to be back in the book of Philippians. We are in Philippians chapter two tonight. We're going to be starting in verse uh, 14. Verse 14. As you're flipping there, let me talk a little bit about camping. I love camping, uh, and I don't particularly mean the version of glamping at Fort Wilderness Resort, you know. Uh, I mean the kind where you are out and you can like go on a hike at night, and there's and all of civilization has dissipated, and you look up at the at the the sky, and it is just it, it's as bright as if it's day almost, right? You know what I'm talking about? When you look and you see, you can see out, you can see constellations. Maybe you know more than I do. I don't actually know what the constellations are, except that like there's two different types of dippers, apparently, like a big one and a little one. I think that's a thing. Uh, But like, I know that they look really cool. They're awesome. I love looking at the night sky and just seeing how impressive they are. Now, we know some things about stars, right? Even though we've never like touched one, but stars have power within themselves, right? Like they, they have chemical reactions that are happening within them that create fire, that create this, this effect that we can see from light years away even, right? Like that is incredible. Now, It makes sense then why in our culture and in our cultural moment, there is a cultural value that that kind of encapsulate this idea of shining bright, of of being impressive, of demonstrating who you are and don't just be yourself in private, like be yourself full on on social media, on all the platforms, make sure everyone can see how awesome the things you are doing. And I, guys, I love some of the things you guys do, I promise. Like some of those TikTok videos, uh, Allie likes watching cake videos, like where people are baking cake. And I find that very impressive because I can't bake anything properly. Uh, be glorious, shine like a star. I mean, you could like probably like hear like, half of the billboards top 25 chart right now in that, right? Like, like that idea of like, be bold and be impressive. And I get the appeal that kind of come nat- comes naturally for me to attempt that, not to actually be that, but to attempt that. I, being awesome on our own terms, it's more than just appealing in our culture. It would actually be a value or a virtue, something that we would actually say in our world around us is something to go after. Anything less would be like conformity and would be hiding yourself. And that would be the opposite of a virtue. It would be, it would be like a faux pas. It would be bad to do. See, our culture definitely is not, it has a desire to be impressive and encourage one another towards that. But what if in that desire to do exactly that, we often get it the wrong way? It doesn't lead to that. It leads to something else. I know that this is my story. Whenever I have desired to be impressive on my own terms, it has not turned out well. Here are a few of the highlights, okay? When I was in the sixth grade, uh, when I was in the sixth grade, yeah, you guys are already here for this. Uh, I, we're at outdoor education camp. And uh, it's a week away, sixth graders to be in the forest like knuckleheads. And I thought I was like, I, I thought I was the class comedian. I'm pretty sure now looking back, it was more like, the class jester, and, uh, and I would get grass and I would eat grass. You guys see how impressive this is, right? But sixth grade Danny found this very impressive and others laughed at me all the way to the nurse's office where for like three days I had major stomach problems because apparently I'm not a goat. So 
I wish I could say I long outgrew those days. Uh, Allie will remember this. Uh, we were, uh, this is before Allie and I were dating and uh, we were at, at a beach for a day with, with some friends. And I had been working outside of this moment on being able to do standing backflips. You know what I'm talking about? Really like backflip and land. And so I decided that that would be really impressive and it would get Allie's attention. And, and it did, I think, um, because I just kept trying to do backflips, except I'm not actually good at them. I'm way worse now, but I wasn't great then either. And I kept falling in the sand and I ended up hurting my knees while basically attempting to be a peacock, I guess. Like, this is not good. Not a goat, not a peacock. What am I? Uh, that's probably one of the most embarrassing moments of my life, and it messed up both my knees. Now, earlier also, wow, that's so nice. I got some alms there. That's not what Allie was saying then. Now, early on in ministry as well, this was something that I really had to struggle with because whenever I came onto a stage, it was super easy for me to try to be impressive, to try to make people laugh or whatever. See, all the efforts to be glorious on my own terms, all the work only ever left me more insecure, more uncertain, more captive to captive and captivated by the thoughts and opinions of others, more exhausted than I was before. See, the culture around us is onto something when it says that shining brightly matters, but is there an approach to shining brightly in a darkened world that leads to something that's actually glorious, something that's truly impressive. And see, this is where we're at tonight as we continue our story in the book of Philippians. Now, last time we were in Philippians, we discovered where Paul talks about it this way. He says, he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This concept that as we become more like Jesus, as we discover more of the delight of what it means to have been adopted into the forever family of God, to be restored into his kingdom, we discover much of who he is. Now with a phrase like that, it's easy though to turn that into some spiritual catchphrase and not really dwell on it. Like for sure, work out my, my salvation with fear and trembling, for sure, whatever that means. And then you kind of keep going. So now Paul's gonna get really practical in verse 14 where we're starting at tonight. He says it this way, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things. Now, this is going to connect back a little later to the concept of glory where we started at. But before we get into that, let's talk about these two words that I already don't like that we're talking about, right? Grumbling and disputing. Complaining. Yeah. Hey, little one. Uh, complaining and causing issues, friction with one another. Yeah. Grumbling is complaining. Uh, any of you ever struggle with complaining? No, 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 you guys are good. Oh, a couple of you are bold like me. Okay, yeah, yeah, we're the complaining club. Complaining is so normal, right? Like in our world. I remember living in Kansas City uh, in, in my college years, this kid from California that like my version of winter was you drove an hour and a half and you went snowboarding. Like that was the only version of actual winter I knew was an hour and a half away from where I lived. Like it got cold, but I never actually experienced real winter. So I spent a winter in Kansas City, Missouri. Now, Kansas City is really cold and like, like really cold. So like, if you're like, but that's in the Midwest, you don't even know what we have up further North for sure. And I don't want to, but I know what Kansas City had and it was really hard for me. And so I asked my friends as I feel like I'm, 
freezing to death. I asked them, I'm like, how do you guys get through this year after year? And they said, oh, it's simple. We complain. And I was like, oh, okay. That, like, that, like that's the cure-all, complaining. See, because grumbling is second nature to us. Many of us, we wake up, our, um, we, we snooze our alarm and our brains are already set to the function of grumble. We move through our days murmuring at a great variety of objects that get in our way. Now, for sure, we use, we use some nicer words to dress it up. We say things like, well, I'm just venting or, or being honest or just getting something off my chest or like my, fa- my personal favorite. I just have a prayer request, you know, and you just kind of go for it. So if complaining, if grumbling is so normal, then why is Paul bothering with it? But let's remember the context. The church in Philippi, we've talked about them before, they have been struggling in two major ways, pressure within and pressure without. That means that they were facing internal frustrations. These disputes were arising within their body. From without, the cultural pressure against this biblical community was pressing in on them. They had ample circumstance to grumble with. Like they were not like, I wonder what we can complain about today. Like they had more than enough, both within their community and outside of their community. So they had more than enough to grumble about. But you see the way of Jesus, it's not rooted in our circumstance. It's rooted in an identity that is unchanging. See, Paul isn't giving us a bunch of caveats here. He isn't suggesting that the way of Jesus means don't grumble unless your workplace gets pretty rough. In which case, open season, you know, or unless a friend betrays you or unless you don't trust the leaders that are currently placing authority over you in whatever ways. Because he uses a nice little catch-all that doesn't have a lot of loopholes in it. He says, do how many things? All things. Oh, Paul, come on, bro. I mean, like, let's think about it. Like, okay, for sure. But what about like when you have a sore throat? Can you grumble about that one? What about when you're hosting house guests or your friend calls you to move the night before? Sorry about that for those of you who did that last time. Appreciate y'all. When you get forced extended at work, when you're told to pick up the slack of a coworker, what about now? All things, like seriously, Paul, really? Personally, I would like if he said like, even most things, some things, like if it was negotiable, like 90% of the things, like 10% of the time it's excusable. But no, he says all things. Because the reality is there are so many temptations to complain about. Because the reality is our world is less than ideal, right? Uh, That's why around here, we oftentimes talk about our world as planet death. Like that idea, we grumble because things are less than ideal. I would imagine you rarely grumble about the things that are going exactly perfectly the way they should, right? My car is running too perfectly. Like, like everything around my house just works perfectly all the time. My friendships, ugh. It's awful how much we get along and never have a fight between us. We always perfectly understand one another. Not the way that we ever live, right? See, we grumble because things are less than ideal. Bosses, churches, friends, illnesses, countries, movies, your life decisions, my life decisions, your friend's life decisions, your family's life decisions, 
all are oftentimes less than ideal. So we grumble. We grumble. And we, we, we have entire industries built on the concept of grumbling. Twitter is such a wonderful forum for grumbling. So that way, not just those who are in your immediate sphere know how you grumble, the rest of the world has the opportunity as well. It's, it's really helpful. Even when, and, and it, it's not just the big things, right? It's the little, it's the dailies. It's like, I mean, a- Abby, Abby's been doing this cute new thing where she tries to help feed Duffy, our dog. And so what she does is she goes and when we're not looking and gets his, um, food bowl and his water bowl and makes it into a salad on the ground right there. And it's a full thing of water. So that's fun. <laughs> now, what do we usually do when we grumble? Who do we grumble to? Well, we can grumble to ourselves under our breaths with some choice words, right? That's always a classic. We grumble to God and we're like, God, where are you? My car is broken down. Or we grumble to other people. But here's the thing. We typically grumble to the wrong people, especially when it's about relationships and about other people. And here's what I mean by the wrong people. Is that it's a people who doesn't have the ability to help affect a solution. Because who do we like to typically grumble to? Typically people that aren't directly involved, but can definitely assist you in the grumbling aspect. Like they're definitely with you on that. Uh, has anybody seen Prep and Landing the, on Disney, Disney Plus? Yeah. Okay. Prep and Landing, about two elves. And uh, they go and set up the, the sites for Santa Claus. And the, uh, and the sleigh is getting ready to go into the air. And it's like, it's like a, a jet runway and they need to get the, the, the reindeer revved up. So a little elf drops from the ceiling and he just goes, yeah, yeah. And then, the, and then all the deer start going, yeah, yeah. And then they start getting revved up. That's what we like in a friend, right? When we have a grumble, we go to them and they're like, yeah, yeah. And you're like, yeah, yeah. And, all, and you're just like, yeah. It's a good grumble. Except you know what that is? It actually has converted already to a different type of communication known as gossiping, which is also not helpful. It's called triangulating. See, we triangulate whenever we make it three-dimensional by bringing in a third party who can't be a part of the solution. So we bring in somebody else into the conversation. We go to someone who can't be a part of the solution, but is going to encourage us where we're already at. They're not typically going to necessarily help us come to greater degrees of truth or greater degrees of perspective, but they are just gonna reinforce the the discontentment that's already in our hearts. Now, let me speak into this for a moment from within our biblical community, from both an organizational perspective and from an interpersonal relationship perspective. As a church, and we don't always get things right. We don't. I know I make decisions all the time and I can't say that 100% of my decisions are the right ones. I can't, I don't know. I have my perspective and I do the best I can and our ministry leaders and for their different ministry spaces, they all do the best they can too. But are we gonna get it right? No. Now, is there room to grumble when, when any of us get things wrong organizationally? For sure. But you wanna know something that's even more helpful? It's not just pretend it away or excuse it away. It's come and have a conversation with, with me 
or with one of the ministry leaders about one of the specific ministries. Have conversations, treat one another as brothers and sisters before, uh, before some organizational behemoth and, and not that, an outsider. See, when we do that, we cut out triangulation. We go directly to the right people. We have conversations. And when we do that, and when we're both coming to one another in a space of humility, hey, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but have you ever thought about doing an event this way or discipleship this way? And then asking the question and, and maybe the, there's a good answer for that or maybe there's not. And it's, man, let's process it. Let's think through that. And that's healthy and good. So it's not that you're supposed to never have a problem with anything that happens in any space of life. For sure, there are things that are less than ideal. But when we have conversations, the conversation changes. Now I don't know where the churches all of you come from. I don't know if that was frowned upon, not allowed, not an open door, but I can tell you around here, there are open doors. And if it doesn't feel that way, then I'm sorry that it feels that way. I want there to be. And with one another, there's no reason that we have to go and gossip about one another because we are brothers and sisters. We can go directly to one another and talk and discover and learn and say, hey, and give one another the benefit of the doubt in intention, but still go to one another. Hey, I'm sure you meant nothing by that. But when you said that thing to me, it was pretty hurtful. Man, who's gonna respond poorly to that? Hopefully none of us. And if we do, then we have grace and we learn and we grow. So that's what we're called to do. We move beyond grumbling and we move beyond those kind of empty disputes. And it doesn't mean that we pretend everything's okay, but it does mean that we are working together, responding to the less than ideal moments in life in a way that reflects the kingdom ideals of loving God and loving one another. So when we take our tendency from a triangle and we squash it down to a flat line, we begin to work towards that ideal. When we keep things triangulated, I can, I, I, I don't know for you, but I cannot tell you one time I've ever triangulated an issue where I did it with love in my heart. I can't do it. Can you? But we all do that from time to time. It's not that, it's not that we should feel shame heaped on us for any of this, but it's that we should be seeing the kingdom ideal of loving God and loving people laid out in the way that we communicate with other people. See, we have to recognize that grumbling, creating discontentment in the hearts of ourselves and others, gossip, they are sinful. They are broken. They don't reflect the heart of God. And when we walk towards one another though, when we go and have genuine conversations, when we're willing to step into the difficult with one another, that does reflect the heart of God. Because it says, I care more about you than my comfort in having this conversation. Because if you're anything like me, you don't like having the hard conversations. They're scary. I know. Now, what we should be more surprised in is we be more surprised on a day that goes by where zero temptation to frustration or complaint happens, right? But yet in the midst of our circumstances that are less than ideal, we are called to hold fast to the gospel of joy regardless of our circumstance which is what Paul's going to touch on next, verse 15 and 16. So do all things without grumbling or disputing. And here he gives his answer as to why. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
See, as we become more like Jesus in our desires, in our thoughts, and in our words, we shine brighter and brighter in a dark world. This isn't just about not saying not nice things. It's about reflecting Jesus everywhere we go. And that's what Paul's getting at. Because again, grumbling is normal, honestly. I mean, grumbling is common language throughout the world. We all can recognize around the globe the basic tenets of a good grumble, right? Eye roll, some shoulder shrugs, some, you know, like any of those. Abby knows how to do those and she can't talk yet. You know, like grumbling comes easy. And if grumbling is normal, then to be a people who don't give in and allow that to be normal. We don't live in grumbling and disputing, then what does that make us? If grumbling is normal, then that would make us abnormal, strange. My favorite word, peculiar, a peculiar people. See, the problem people have with Christians so often is less about how we are different than the world around us and is more about how we are just like the world around us, except we pretend that we're different. We are called to be a peculiar people. See, this is the reason that Paul gets here for why we are called to live without grumbling and disputing because it reveals both what we believe and where we are from. Grumbling is discontentment and unbelief made audible. I'll say that one again. Grumbling is discontentment and unbelief made audible. Now, Right here, this is actually meant to be a hyperlink back to the story of the Israelites wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Do you remember that story? They lived in disbelief of God's desires for them. They were discontent with the provisions that he made. I mean, imagine they were a people for generations living in enslavement in Egypt, but now all of a sudden they're free. So you would imagine and hope that all of a sudden they'd be like, man, whatever the circumstance is better than that. But instead, soon after, they're already like, how do we get back into that relationship before? Now, I know when you think about the Israelites in that moment, it's so easy to go, what knuckleheads? Like who would do that? Of course you wouldn't want to go back into slavery. That's, that sounds really foolish. I mean, it's not like any of us were in once in bondage, enslaved to sin but now have found freedom. But then when our circumstances aren't exactly ideal, we're like, how do I get back over there? I mean, you guys don't do that, right? They lived in disbelief in God's desires and they were discontent with his provision. So they did the only thing that they could do, they complained. And they did it a lot. They like made it an Olympic sport. If you read the story of Exodus and Deuteronomy, like you will see like a, a, a grumbling masterclass, right? They blended in with the world around them. They lived apart from a loving and trusting relationship with their God. Now, this is where this story connects back with the concept of shining stars. Stars are impressive. Now, from our human vantage point, there is a greater light that is in the night sky than any star. What's that light? The moon, the, and the night sky. The moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a trick question, I promise. I promise. The moon. The moon is a really bright object in the sky. But the moon is peculiar, right? It's the only thing like it in the sky. It's a lot brighter. It's a lot closer. Now, you 
maybe you don't know this. The moon doesn't actually shine though. Did you guys know that? Yeah, like the moon doesn't actually have any ability within itself to produce light. But two things give it the ability to appear so. It's position and it's reflective surface. See, it doesn't matter that the that the moon doesn't have the ability to shine on its own. It's not impressive enough. It doesn't have the ability to do chemical things that would make it combust into flame. And that, that's probably a good thing for us, I would imagine. It's not glorious enough, but that is irrelevant because the sun provides all the light that is needed for the moon to become a beacon of light every night just by its positioning and its ability to reflect. Of course, the sun is so much brighter than the moon, right? In fact, the moon only reflects 4% of the light that hits its surface. Now, at this point, you probably already are kind of getting where I'm going with the metaphor, right? You are free from trying to shine for attention. You don't have to be impressive. If you still feel that burden, you don't have to. You've been freed from that. You don't have to focus on being impressive. Instead, we are free to be a peculiar people. Like the moon, we have the opportunity to shine, but to shine is we are simply reflecting the light of life that shines off of us, which is the gospel of Jesus. And when we follow the way of Jesus and use words in a way that express genuine belief, trust, and contentment, we stand out in the night sky filled with stars, which is why he says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, that wasn't just their generation, that's every generation. That is, the, the, that is just the depravity of the world we live in. That is planet death language. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. But we're not, it's not, okay, I'm gonna shine. No, it's put yourself in a position where you are connecting with Jesus in such a way that you simply just reflect the light that he is already emanating. And that's what happens. That's why he's even connecting this the way we use our words, because as we become more like Jesus in our desires, our thoughts and our words, we shine brighter and brighter in the midst of a dark world. And we don't do this on our own terms, but what does Paul say next? He says, among whom you shine is lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. See, this is why it's so vital that we see the scriptures as authoritative and not just one of a million solid sources. Because before anything that I or anyone on any stage or any voice on social media or any expert would say, the scriptures are the authority. If, if there is ever anything that anyone here at Mosaic says on a stage that it contrasts with the scriptures, if it's me versus the scriptures, the scriptures win every time. Please come and let me know. See, it's authoritative because no voice, no voice in, is perfect. No voice doesn't sway from time to time. But see, the scriptures aren't altered by preferences or context, but they speak into every culture and, and they convict every context. But you see, it's not only true, it's also good. Notice the word he uses here. He describes the scriptures as the word of life, because you see the scriptures bring about life, light, and freedom. See, don't just tell me that the Bible is true, but show me how it conveys a more beautiful vision of life than anything that any shining star could possibly muster. That's why, that's why I gravitate to the scriptures. And Paul wants this church that he loves so much to shine as beacons of light. 
reflecting the true light of the Son of God. He wants them to shine brightly and uniquely in front of all of the lights, all the counterfeit lights that this world could possibly produce. But this comes from drawing near to Jesus day after day, long obedience in the same direction. Now, verse 17 and 18, here's where we'll land tonight. Paul continues this thought, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. As we become more like Jesus in our desires, our thoughts and our words, we shine brighter and brighter in a dark world. So now Paul gives a living demonstration of this unexpected and peculiar attitude. In fact, right here, he's actually giving the first of three personal examples, people for them to witness and study and mirror their life on. And this is the first one. And we're going to cover the other two in the weeks preceding. So he's going to talk about himself. Now, there's a lot of metaphorical language that he's using here, right? He says, I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Now, that's a lot of metaphorical language. It could be really easy to lose the meaning of what he's actually talking about here. What he means is that he is imprisoned and he might potentially be on death row. So when he says poured out, he like means like his death. Like he, he's talking about my circumstances are not ideal. If anyone has reason to grumble, would anyone give Paul a pass here if he wanted to grumble a little bit, right? Like that would make sense. But he says something peculiar. I am glad and rejoice with you all. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Gnarly, right? Not exactly what we would expect, but Paul is a peculiar guy. And he wants this church to be peculiar. That's why he says, likewise, you should all, you should be glad and rejoice with me. You might look at my circumstances and go, ah, like this is terrifying. No, don't do that. Rejoice and be glad with me. See that this is not about this moment. See that it's about bigger than this moment. He wants them to focus on being impressive, not in the world's eyes, but by laying down their lives and sacrifice and, and love for one another and the world around them. He wants them to be a peculiar people. He wants them to focus on using their words to reflect hearts of belief and contentment, not grumbling and discontentment. He's peculiar and he's calling them to peculiar things. He wants them to draw near to Jesus to discover more of him and his life, not settle for surface level Christianity or create a belief system that matches up with what they want. That's peculiar. As we become more like Jesus in our desires, our thoughts and our words, we shine brighter and brighter in a dark world. What does it look like? What does it mean to become peculiar like this? Well, it takes regularly going back to God, confessing to him, confessing to one another when we are setting our hopes and our peace on anything other than Jesus. It takes examining our hearts when we are tempted to grumble. It takes the ability for us to be the kind of friend that doesn't just help rev up others' engines and go, yeah, they are the worst. Instead, hey, have you, have you talked to that person yet? and giving them the permission to do the same in your life. Does anyone have permission to do that in your life? I meet with my discipleship group guys tomorrow. I'm gonna ask them that. 
I need that. You need that. We need that so that we would have our eyes more and more focused on Jesus. I, not, hey, would you let me just kind of just keep going? No, would you help me to draw near to Jesus with my words? It takes intentionality with the scriptures. I mean, how can we hold fast to the word of life if we haven't seen our Bible under the dirty laundry in our room that's been chilling there for a month, right? We need to go on a journey within the scriptures, not just to know more stuff, but to know God more. Remember, this is long obedience in the same direction. Day by day stuff, step by step stuff, moment by moment work. But it is worth it. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. And see, this is my hope for us as a biblical community. That we would be this kind of peculiar. Not just blending in or trying to stand out on our own terms, but being peculiar like the moon, but really being peculiar like Jesus. Demonstrating love for God, love for people when that's not a very fashionable thing. And reflecting his light in a world that is clamoring for genuine and authentic light. Would you pray with me? Father, I... I stand up here often and feel so unworthy to be able to proclaim your word. And I know that that is, feels so true tonight. Knowing how my heart is filled so often with discontentment, is so tempted to grumble. So often the words that come out of my mouth are not ones that are loving and pleasing to you, but they are ones that feel good in the moment and feel like a dagger coming out. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for that. And Lord, I pray that for us, that your Holy Spirit be working in our lives and our hearts tonight to bring those things up into our mind. Not that we would feel guilty or ashamed, but that we would bring those things to you so that we would say, God, that's not your best for me. And I want your best for me. I'm tired of living with what I view as best for me. Your best is better. So I pray over every man, woman, and child that's in this space tonight, that Lord, you'd be drawing our hearts and our minds to you, that you would be giving us perspective and encouragement and that you would help us to be reminded mostly of our identity, that we are your kids and that as your kids, we are called to reflect you wherever we go. I pray that we would do that, not with some begrudging obligation, but with joy. Because we are beggars who found the ultimate source of food. So help us take that to those around us. Thank you for your love. You're incredible. Thank you for being our dad. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.